0: Today we have uh, the great joy of starting a brand new sermon series. This is something that is an annual thing for us around Covenant. If you've been around for a few years now, you've noticed that every year around this time we take one psalm and then we sort of dig deep into that psalm. And so we've done Psalm 23 and Psalm 116 and Psalm 40, and this year we're taking on Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm from King David. But it's also a psalm of of great uh, suffering and sorrow. It's this sort of walk through the depths of what it means to be human. And in that, uh, we're really excited because I would argue that the church, while good at many things, the capital C church in in the world today, we're not very good at suffering. And we're not very good at at walking alongside of those who suffer with uh, much aptitude, And so for the the course of the next five weeks, what we're going to do is dig into Psalm 22, read the words of the scripture, and figure out on two different levels uh, how it applies. One, how does it apply to you as you walk through the trials and tribulations of life, as you think back upon the seasons of great trouble, or as you walk into new ones in the days to come? And then second, how do we as a people, as a community, create greater empathy, greater community, that we might walk well with those who are in something right now? And so those are kind of the two uh, paths we're going to travel on, and we uh, have a devotional that goes with this. Here's the way this works. So over the next 30 days, there are, 30, uh, six, there are five weeks and there are 30 devotionals here in this uh, devotional book. And so on a Sunday, you'll come in here and you hear the sermon that goes through a part of the passage, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, there's a devotional corresponding to that week that you walk through. And then on Sunday, you'll come back in here, and then week two starts. And so we go through five weeks, and there's five weeks represented here. The idea is, this this push, is that church is not a Sunday thing, that we, the church, we're about the church of the 167, the people who go out from this place and begin to practice the things that God is doing in us. And so this month, every year, is a chance for us to dig deep in something, marinate in it together, and all be on the same page. So we want you to have this uh, as easily and freely as possible. So there's a number of different ways to get this. The first of which is today through Wednesday, if you go on Amazon and you put in my name or you put in Psalm 22 devotional, there's a free Kindle version available for you. You can just have it. Uh, Also, if you wanted to buy a paper copy, you can buy a paper copy if you really need paper and you're one of those people that says, I just love the way books smell. You can do that. I won't judge you, um, but you can do that there as well. And then uh, third and finally, if you go, you know, none of that is for me. I don't want to do any of these things. I have enough stuff in my life. We're going to put it on Facebook every single uh, morning at 6 a.m. And so if you wake up and you go, I just want to go to the Covenant Facebook page and read the day's devotional, you can do that. In addition to that, you can share it with anybody you like. As we go through something as personal as sorrow and suffering, as we work through the different uh, machinations that that creates in us, there will be days that you read and you go, ugh, you know, my friend needs this, or my cousin needs that, or my coworker needs to, gosh, if they just could hear this, maybe it would help them through the fog they're in today. And so that's why we put it on Facebook and Twitter every single day for free. You might share it so as to bring a little bit of the light to someone else. And so that's all there for you. If, if you have any other needs or you go, you yeah, I don't want any of that stuff, but print me a PDF right now, I will do that. We want to make sure you have it as free as possible so that you can work through this with us, okay? Amen. So today, we uh, start our series talking about loneliness, we can talk about loneliness. And David, we'll see as we get into the scripture in a minute, goes through a great loneliness as he goes through sorrow and suffering. And the first thing I want to say is, is sort of sorrow and suffering are not problems to solve. It's not a situation to fix as much as it's a weight that we learn to carry. So for each and every one of us, as we have walked through things, you don't really get through sorrow and suffering. You learn how to carry it and, and, and add it to the fabric of who you are. Talk to anybody who's gone through great, sorrow, great depth of, of suffering, great depth of acute pain, they all agree with it. But yeah, when I lost my loved one, when I went through that terrible tragedy, when I—I I never really got over it. I never really got through it. It never really got fixed. It was this wound that, that scarified, and then I just had to learn to live with it. And so we want to sit there for the next five weeks and really recognize that this is not about how do we get fixed. This is about how do we learn to carry the weight of sorrow and suffering like Christ. So loneliness— is already an epidemic in our modern world. Before we add any uh, sorrow, suffering, pain, grief, before we add anything to it, loneliness is, is already just an epidemic. And you may have heard a lot of these stats before, but I would like to uh, see if I can convince you that loneliness is a bit of a problem. Okay, half of Americans feel alone or left out, and 54% say no one knows them well, which is to say that if you look to your left and to your right, one of the two people you are sitting next to does not feel like they are well known. Like, no one knows them. Not just a U.S. issue, half of uh, British folks, over 65, British people over 65, half of them consider a pet or a television to be their main source of company. Imagine that. In Japan, over half a million people under 40 haven't left their house or interacted with another human being in six months. Half a million people. Sounds lonely. In Canada, 28% of uh, households are now solo households, meaning there's only one person there. In the European Union, it is 34%. We are on that same track here. The National Institute of Health says loneliness leads to depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, even hallucinatory delirium. In 2015, UCLA found that social isolation triggers hormonal and cellular changes. Social isolation literally changes the cells of your body, resulting in chronic inflammation, increased rates of heart disease, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's. Social isolation is most acutely felt in adolescence and the over 65 population. Millennials, are you ready for this? Millennials are here. They don't want to be here. Don't look at me. I'm a millennial. Just leave me alone. And tweet at me. Among millennials, the loneliness is the number one fear of all millennials. This is, this is um, shocking to me. The number one fear of millennials is loneliness ahead of other such fears like losing my job or my home or my family. of millennial women are more afraid of loneliness than they are of being diagnosed with cancer. The generation that gave us FOMO, the fear of missing out, there's a suggestion that what they're afraid of missing out on is not some sort of concert or get-together or activity, but they're missing out on the social interaction that is the key to the life that they choose to live. So take the foundation of loneliness that we've just laid out, add to that some sorrow and some suffering, some grief and some acute, acute loss and pain, and what we get is we are looking at each other as if we are a people soaked in lighter fluid, and then our suffering is a lit match thrown onto us. We are already dealing with these things. We are already trudging through life, many of us feeling desperately alone, and then you go through a hard time, you go through a trial, you go through tribulation, and you find yourself doubled down in that. There is a uniqueness of our loneliness that we're going to talk about today, a a uniqueness of loneliness and suffering. There is a restlessness that we all go through, and then there's finally an invitation, I believe, within loneliness, within sorrow and suffering, there's an invitation for each and every one of us. So to get there, we'll go to the scripture, to Psalm 22, verse 1 through 5. We'll put it on, on the screen here for you if you want to read along. David says this, and it might sound familiar because Jesus said the same thing later. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they were trusted and were not put to shame. He starts out by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me all alone? Why have you left me here by myself? Why am I feeling unheard in this moment? And then Jesus will later cry out those words in the cross, and and the same is true. Why are you not answering? Why have you left me alone? Why am I forsaken? I would challenge you to think of the time when you felt most alone in life. Physically, or emotionally, or spiritually, when have you felt most alone where you would say, man, during this season of life, I was totally by myself. And there may have been people all around, and there have been people trying to help, and there may have been people living with you even, and you still felt like, man, I am just crushingly alone. I can vividly recall the two loneliest seasons of my life. One was in a hospital room in October of 2000. I was recovering from a lung surgery. 14 days in a hospital room. I donated a lung to my sister and a lung transplant, and I couldn't imagine in that moment as I was recovering that there was anyone in the world like me. I said, there cannot be another 19-year-old whose little 12-year-old sister is in critical condition across the street in the hospital 900 miles from home while I, the 19-year-old, am suffering and in pain and breaking the record for the longest post-operative stay of a lung extraction in the history of the planet, which was what they were telling me. I said, I'm utterly alone in this. There's nobody that can understand what this is like because there was no one that would be able to understand what that was like because it was a pretty unique circumstance. I was profoundly lonely as a result. The other time I was in South Africa and around this time, 15 years ago, June and July is the peak of their winter and it gets pretty cold and I was alone in a freezing cold room in a rat-infested house with a dirty used mattress on the floor and that was my life. I remember thinking how there were very few people that could relate to what I was going through. And while I was living the same life as 10 million people in the city around me, none of them were 9,000 miles from home. They were at home. And yet I felt profoundly lonely in that moment. So much so that when other missionaries, we would host mission teams from around the world, and when missionaries from Western countries would visit us, I'd get excited. The Aussies are coming, and it's like, I don't, I don't know anything about Australians, but I just know that they, like, eat some of the same food, and they'll commiserate with me, and they'll feel bad for me. I'll take their pity. I'll take any of it. If they got gloves when they're not looking, I'll take those too because it is cold. And so we would wait for the Aussies to come, and that was a good source of like pick-me-up. The Canadians would come. we got to love Canadians, the friendliest people on earth. They would come, and they weren't cold. They thought it was summer. And <laughs> they created their own suffering, actually. So while I'm suffering and alone, while I'm feeling self-pity, and I think I'm the only person on earth that could be going through this, my wife and I were there as missionaries a couple years later, and the Canadians came to come and, and sort out our lives. The Canadians came to bring freshness and renewal and hope and their great testimonies of their love for Jesus. My wife plays the piano, and the Canadian leader comes to her one day and he says, "Listen, I have a very important favor to ask. The pastor has asked me to give my testimony during the church service. I said, "Yes, yes, there will be hundreds of people there waiting to hear this incredible testimony you bring from so far away. You're 10,000 miles from here. What is your testimony?" And he goes, well, I can't tell you now, but I'll tell you then. But he then goes to my wife, and he says, can you play Amazing Grace? And she goes, well, yeah. And then he says, can you play every stanza, all of them? Like, just don't stop. If I, if I didn't give you the nod, I just want you to start playing. Do you have that? And she goes, yeah, eh, you know, okay. And so he gets up and we introduce him. And, and this was a thing we would do when, when foreign missionaries would visit us in South Africa. We would put them up on stage in a room full of Africans and we'd go, well, Brother Jim or, or Sister Sally, they, they have a testimony to give. And so we'd give them the microphone and then they would give us their heart-wrenching story of how they came to faith and hopefully encourage the people. And this man, this Canadian, God rest his soul, he stood up and he said, I'm now going to give you my testimony. And I believe it will be the most, testi- the most beautiful testimony you've ever heard. What I will do... And then he gives my wife the nod, and she will corroborate the story. It's 100% true. He gives her, like, the little start playing. She starts playing Amazing Grace. She's got it. She's in the intro. He goes, I will now sing the entirety of Amazing Grace through native North American bird calls as my testimony. And we looked around, and she starts to play, and he gets a real serious look on his face, and he cups his hands just so. Every stanza, all the way through, it was like nine minutes of bird calls at which he finished, and an entirely urban African crowd... I remember turning around being like, you guys can rob them, I don't care, just... They earned it. We're all hungry. Just get whatever you can off these people. This was not okay. Um, So I think the point of that was they just added to our suffering. We thought they were coming to bring relief. And there was just hundreds of people suffering in the church because of this bird call guy. And in that moment, as we suffered, I thought, who could know the pain of this? What about you? When have you found yourself in a position where no one can quite understand what you're going through? Profound loss, estranged from family, isolated from friends, the death of a loved one. In my job, I get to spend a lot of time with grieving people, with hurting people, with lonely people. I always say it's strangely one of my favorite parts of my job. I, if you do a wedding for somebody, you're an accessory at the wedding. You're like the centerpiece at the head table. They need you to get the thing done, but you could really put anybody in a suit there and it would all be okay. But when someone is grieving, when you're doing a memorial service, when you're sitting with a family at a wake, it's something profoundly different. Is you're essential not? Because You have to get the paper signs of the weddings official. You're essential because someone needs to be there to offer comfort when loss is all that can be felt. And people in these moments will tell me, they say, no one knows what I'm going through. No one can imagine what this feels like. And I tell them that they're right. Which surprised me the first time I said it. The first time somebody said, no one knows what this feels like. I said, you're right because your suffering in your moment is uniquely yours, that your journey and your position in the world and your loss is yours and no one else's, and it is unique. And you feel it from your perspective in your own way and no one else can know what that's like. You're absolutely right. Each suffering is unique and each sorrow is its own fog that descends upon the human soul and just sort of sits there. And anybody who's walked through suffering knows the feeling of that fog and you sort of wait for it to break And you can see that there's light out there, and you can see that there's people out there, but you still are enveloped in your own sorrow. So the parent who is estranged from a child and the parent whose child has passed away, they both know acute loss. But they are different and unique and profoundly painful in their own way. They each produce a different loneliness. The widow and the divorcee both know the loss of a spouse, but the journeys and the pains are unique and different and each produce a separate and a profound loneliness. They're unique. And yes, both may know pain, but neither knows the other's pain. And so we ask the question, who can understand? No one has lost someone in the circumstances that you have or felt the particular longing in the particular moment in the particular season of life that you have. And that is absolutely true, that your suffering is yours and is uniquely yours. So what makes counseling through such things like that so difficult. If I, if I told you that healing was found in a map, and then for today, for person A, the destination to healing is Toronto, and for person B, it's Seattle, and oh, by the way, the roads change every day, and there's no actual step-by-step instruction, and the, the GPS doesn't work because everybody has to find their own way through it. And so you can't lay out in front of somebody the guidebook. You can't lay out in front of somebody the steps. You can't say, go ask your friend who's been through something similar because their journey was different than your journey. And so your suffering is unique and it's yours. And that's what makes it so isolating. We find ourselves so isolated and alone because we know in the root of our soul that no one else is sitting where we are at that moment. You can hear it in David's cries says, I cry out and there's no answer. Who understands me? Who knows my pain? Who hears my cry? And his answer is, no one response. David says, I find no rest. In my sorrow I cry out and there's no response and so I find no rest because loneliness leads to restlessness. And restlessness is an indication of a soul that has become unmoored, drifting and desperate for an anchor. If you've walked through valley before, you know that feeling of being like a ship just drifting in the ocean. And in the midst of that fog and in the midst of that drifting, you don't have a direction, you don't know which way to go, you cannot see the lighthouse, and there is no anchor to stop you. And so you wait and you sort of bump up against the coastline, and you bump up against other things and you just sort of careen your way through the fog. Part of the loneliness of sorrow and suffering is this unshakable feeling that no one quite gets it. I can't invite someone in because they just wouldn't understand. And the reason that we feel this profound sense of isolation is because we were not designed for isolation. That you and I were designed and created for community. We were created by a God who lives in community for a community. The reason we celebrate new members is not because uh, having your name on a sheet of paper means anything. It's because people have recognized their innate desire to join a community for something greater than themselves, to be part of a bigger whole, to be part of a family that's chasing something greater. That we're co-committed to each other and in that co-commitment, in that community, that we find power and we find hope and we find grace to move on. And so isolation hits us so squarely in the gut because we know it's the opposite of why we were created. And so we have to challenge the false idea that no one can know our pain or our struggle because while yours is unique, others will know some pain and they can sit with you there anyway. Even if they don't know your exact pain, they might be willing to sit in the ashes with you. Jesus in the garden invites his friends to simply be with him. In his moment of greatest anguish and agony before taking the cross, he invites his three closest friends while he's going to pray. He says, just come be with me. Come keep watch while I pray. Can they understand what he's going through? Can they understand the anguish he's about to take on? Can they have any clue of what Jesus is going through in the garden? No. And he knows that. And yet he invites them because in his humanness, he says, I want people with me while I suffer. It is his created drive, like it's your created drive, that when we walk through a challenge, there is nothing like someone who is willing to sit in the ashes with us, even if they have nothing to say. Jesus invites his friends to spare him the loneliness of the garden. And they slept and increased his pain. We long for that same thing. We long for people to at least be close. We long for people to sit with us, to sit in the ashes of loss, to, in silence, with a look across the room or a nod, to just go, You're not alone. I don't have anything to say. I cannot make you feel better. I cannot fix this. I can't bring them back, but you're not alone. And we long for that. So, church, here on one hand, that the reason you long for that is you were created for a community. And on the other hand, here that when you are walking with someone who's going through something like that, what they need is not to be fixed in a transactional American culture. What they need is someone to sit in the ashes and say, I'm not letting you sit alone. I went to a 40th birthday party of my brother in law recently. We were in Columbus, and we go to this party. Now, we don't know anybody but the birthday boy. 40. I guess the birthday man now, I guess, officially. And after a little while, his community group shows up. They go to church, and then his pastor shows up. And I saw his pastor, and his, his pastor meets me, and he goes, oh, you're the, you're the pastor brother-in-law? I was like, oh, you're the, you're the pastor of my brother-in-law? And, and we had this, like, immediate, you know, like, laser connection, eyes to eyes, not romantic. And, and we were like... We're like, you too. You know. And he's like, yeah, you know. You know what it's like. And I was like, you know what it's like. And then so we kind of just sort of drifted off into the backyard, into the corner, and we just had this great like two-hour-long talk, and I don't know what anybody else was doing or what they were talking about, but I had somebody in the room who knew, who could just sit there with me, and I was listening to them. They're planting a new campus, and he's opening a new building, and he's got all this stuff going on. He's like, well, what's happening in your world? And it doesn't matter what I say. He gets it. On some level, he got it. Because something in my soul just wants someone to, to get it. Not to fix it. Didn't help me. Didn't do anything for me. Didn't pray for me. But he got it. And somewhere in my soul that was this deep, soothing thing. And so who in your life needs you to simply walk over and say, I can't fix it, but I can get it with you. I can sit with you. What does this mean for us? When I had my most acute seasons of loneliness, they were marked by two things. One was a profound and unique circumstance. We all go through those. The second thing that led me to great loneliness was a willingness to retreat into myself. A willingness to retreat into myself. So we can recognize that we don't control the circumstances around us. You and I don't get to dictate when the storm comes upon life. But I can control the story I tell myself. And with a couple changed words, the whole story changes too. I can control the story and the narrative I create around the struggle I find myself in. So while my pain may be unique to me, I can create the narrative that my pain itself is not unique, that there are others around me who are listening to the amazing grace testimony and in just as much agony as I am. There are others who've lost a parent or a sibling. There are others who have no relationship with a loved one. There are others who are walking through life the same way I'm working through life. And while we may not be on the exact same page, man, we're in the same book together. And we can figure it out. And that narrative changes the whole way we think because when we were saying we're created for a community, when, if we're going to retreat into ourselves, we retreat into isolation. But if we do what we were created to do, then what we actually do is lean into others. And we have, to, we have to fight the urge to go into the pot of loneliness and fight that to where we get with others and we commune with others and we cry with others even when it doesn't feel like the thing we want to do. Not only are there others that can sit in my ashes, there is one who can do more than that. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet talks about the coming Messiah. In chapter 53, he says this, he, the coming Messiah, he's speaking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. In great loneliness and in acute suffering, we long for someone who knows rejection. We long for someone who knows suffering. We long for someone who's familiar with pain. I would argue that in each of our souls, in our moment of great agony, what we long for is really just Jesus. Verse 4 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we were considered punished him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? Meaning no one bothered to stop the crucifixion. That in its greatest hour of need and of isolation and of suffering, everybody went, oh, not for me. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had not done violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 11, after he suffered, he suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied, by his knowledge my righteous servants will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He bears your sin and mine, the places that we are imperfect. His perfection reigns. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the sinners, the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He poured out his life. When we consider what it means to have empathy for someone else, to to work through their struggle with them, what would it look like to pour your life out for another No one knows the profound loneliness of Jesus on the cross, forsaken, alone. My God, my God. Jesus took on hell. One of the most mind-blowing doctrines of Orthodox Christianity is that Jesus took on the fullness of hell for you and I. That he didn't just die to see our sins done away with. That he took on the fullness of God's wrath That in the garden, when he begins sweating blood, he's sensing the beginning of this separation from God and he experiences the fullness of the hell that you and I earned compressed into just a couple of days. It is mind-blowing. The Savior of the world didn't choose to pull us from suffering simply, but he chose to suffer on our behalf that we would suffer less. And as you and I consider what does it mean to love a Savior like that, we also consider what does it mean to be in a community like that where you and I do not look at the sufferer among us and have pity. Try not to say the wrong thing. But we go, what would it look like to lay my life down in this season? What would it look like to give just a little bit more? Jesus took on profound loneliness so that you and I might never know loneliness again. Henry, now in the great Catholic theologian surprised me he's reading some of his work and he said loneliness is a precious gift i didn't see that coming i'm preparing this great message that i'm going to preach about how loneliness is this terrible thing that we all go through but we can get through it together and he says no 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 loneliness is a precious gift now it says it reveals to us an inner emptiness that can be destructive and misunderstood but it leads us towards the promise of him, the one who can tolerate its sweet pain on our behalf. That loneliness, when it enters your life, is simply an invitation to lean into Jesus. That your loneliness is a gift. It's opening a card in the mail that says you're invited. In your loneliness, and mine, in your trial and tribulation, in my suffering and my sorrow, each and every one of those moments is an invitation to lean into Jesus. Our pain points us to a healer Our suffering points us to a Savior and our loneliness points us to a friend that will never leave us nor forsake us. Loneliness is an invitation to lean into Jesus. We live in a broken world and there will be sorrow and suffering as long as we are here. But Jesus came that we need never walk alone through that life. So if I can offer any hope this morning, it isn't that you won't deal with deep pain. If you haven't already, you will. It is that as you lean into Jesus, you never need be alone in the pain that life brings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the heaviness of a topic like this, it's easy. It's easy to forget the lightness that you offer. That you offer that we might follow you and in following you that we would have the burden removed from our life. That the heavy yoke of of trying to be good enough and trying to earn your favor is gone. That, Lord, your suffering, your suffering was an invitation to us to follow in the easy and beautiful ways of grace. Father, I would be... uh, Dishonest, if I didn't confess, a confusion. Bewilderment in the pain that comes upon lives. And Lord, we recognize that your, your invitation into loneliness is really an invitation into community with you. That the seasons of suffering we face, Father, we know that that's an invitation to find a friend like you. So, my prayer for our community today is that those who are today experiencing that loneliness and isolation, those who will walk away from this place and drive to a spot to sit by themselves, Father, I pray that they would be sitting with you instead. Embrace them, pull them close. Father, for those in this community that know someone who is walking through trial at the moment, who know someone who is suffering, Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would learn to suffer well with others, that we would find ourselves in the ashes with others. And as we do so, God, may it honor you as we try to model a life that looks just a little bit like the life of Jesus. Lord, thank you for a community like this and a place that we might gather to encourage each other. Thank you for your son, for his healing, for his salvation, and for his invitation to true life. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.